This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Kara Petrovitz, an inspired and inspiring Catholic artist finding beauty and inspiration in the chaos and joys of motherhood. To explore Kara's portfolio, visit her website at Kara Petrovitz, that's K-A-R-A-P-A-T-R-O-W-I-C-Z.com, and follow her on Instagram at Kara.Petrovitz. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation twice a week this week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, who is wearing quite a shirt. Ed, you're wearing quite a shirt. Okay. It's what, it's a rugby shirt. Oh, you're wearing a rugby shirt. That's for a rugby yes. team that you like. I thought I thought you didn't like rugby. Oh, no. Rugby you like, soccer you don't like. Uh, I did play rugby as a as a schoolboy, yes. I went to a rugby school as opposed to a football school. Um, the, the shirt in question, I mean, it would be fair to say it's a team I like, I guess. It's the British and Irish Lions, which are an occasional touring side. The British Nine-Inch Lions? Is that like The British inch? and Irish Lions. Oh, that makes more sense, doesn't it? So the best players from all four of the home nations get together and travel abroad to either kick the asses of or have their asses kicked by the South Africans, the Australians, the New Zealands. Oh, the national like team, that. the English national team. Well, yes, except this is not the English national team. This is an all-star team made up of the national teams of, oh, as I said, English England, Scotland, teams. Ireland, and Wales. Oh, okay, an English all-star team. Uh, you know what, JD? I would like to talk about something different entirely, which is... <laughs> extra! Extra! Somebody's getting married! JD, I would like to say a very, very large set of congratulations to Catherine Renee Brewer and Morris Rand Butcher III. Um, friends of the show, I, I would say close friends of the show dear friends of Long the show time pillar podcast listeners pillar subscribers and friends morris and Catherine. well i would like to say congratulations to morris who is being married this weekend but uh, ed you don't congratulate a bride you offer her best wishes so well indeed uh, congratulations morris and best wishes Catherine. you're gonna need them <laughs> um we had hoped actually to be at their wedding and then uh, a family obligation kept me from going and i think a family obligation kept you from going um but we really these are just this is just a young catholic couple that we've been rooting for uh morris and Catherine, and we just want to wish them both the best of congratulations and good wishes I hope you guys have an amazing time at your wedding. It looks great. I did, in fact, want to be there. More importantly, my wife wanted to be there, and she doesn't like leaving the house. So she wanted to go to you know all the way to Tennessee because she thought this was going to be a great job. And unfortunately, the childcare thing fell through. But anyway, guys, congratulations. Have a wonderful wedding. Enjoy the honeymoon. Godspeed. And Ed, here's what I want to ask you. How long have you been married, Ed? I have been married a period of years. Okay, fair enough. I have been married, I want to say, 16 years. Yeah, I want to say 16 years I've been married, and you've been married, I think, almost as long as that. Is that uh, right? You have been married either slightly longer or slightly shorter than I have, yes. <laughs> so here's my question. In that time of being married for all those years, you have probably acquired some wisdom about marriage. And I think a lot of the conventional wisdom and the conventional advice given to married people is bad. Um, maybe it works for some people to hear, for example, don't go to bed angry, but I have found, um, don't fight when you're tired is, uh, is a better idea. You know, like, um, I, sometimes I feel like don't go to bed angry. is just an invitation to, um, you know, <laughs> not, uh, you know, to not discuss things at optimal, at optimal conditions. Um, sometimes you are angry and it's okay to sort of sit in that anger and then, um, as, but, but it's not okay to sort of bring that to your spouse. And so sometimes it's better to just take some space. When you're angry, even if that space has you going to bed on the cold side of the bed. Uh, but anyway, so anyway, there are some pieces of marriage advice which have become very cliche, which I don't 
cotton to. Um, and then some things which I think are often go unsaid about marriage. But I want to know your marriage advice, Ed. What, what is your advice to the newlyweds? I have some marriage advice, and I will willingly give it. But uh, first, I would like to go to your... You, you have... Was it not St. Peter who said, don't let the sun set on your anger? I don't know. I don't know but that that's just an old cliche. I think that's in the in the Bible. I think it is, but I don't agree with it. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I at least would, I want um, to interpret it in a way which... Uh, I want to interpret it in a way... Yeah, it comes from Ephesians. Uh, but I want to. I think it's probably metaphorical, and I think people take it very literally, and young married couples are like, no, it's midnight, and we're tired, and we have this important thing to hash out, and we're pissed at each other, and we've got to hash it out because the Pope said not to go to bed angry or whatever. And it's like, no, give yourself some break. My biggest advice to married people is like, give yourself a break and some space to realize it's not always easy to be in a, a partnership for the whole of life with another person. And, uh, you know, don't, don't push... Don't push too hard to think you have to be any one thing. Well, I, I suppose that that's that's probably good advice. I would offer you a, a sort of via media. Um, this is you, you don't have to um, hash the thing out to not go to bed angry. Um, you know, I, I would say a proper regrounding of of yourselves in 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 the spousal union. Uh, can can be affected without you know having to necessarily come to a resolution of the thing that your one or other of you is furious about. I, and I I myself have to take this advice because I can't go to bed angry. I one of the few things that you know um, genuinely ups my energy levels really to a, a near super is to be genuinely angry. So um, I I can't actually go to sleep angry. But I would advise um, everyone says pray together. You should always pray together with your husband or wife, and I think that is true. But I would I, I would be more specific, and I would say. Pray together with your husband or wife uh, first and last thing every day. Um, and, you know, just do morning prayer or the office of readings and Vespers or, or Compline. Um, and I find that that answers very, very well for, for marital communion and, and framing um, the day's events. Uh, within the context of marriage, that helps me a great deal. But as a piece of practical and less religious advice, I would say this. Um, Every Saturday morning, perhaps within the context of praying together, uh, lay bare your secret plans for the weekend. My wife and I started doing this um, about 10 years ago, and it has been a game changer in our marriage. Which, when I say lay bare your secret plans, it, it is to say, what is the thing that you are trying to escape from your spouse to do over the course of the weekend, whether it is time in the yard or, you know, I, I don't know reading a book or whatever it is that you want to do. And you're going to spend all weekend trying to subtly manipulate your spouse into either doing <laughs> for you or letting you do on your own. Just, just put it right out there. Right. First thing, Saturday morning, say, here are my secret plans for the weekend. And, and sometimes you can, you know, make it all work and sometimes you can't, but at least then nobody's, you know, you're not dealing with any of the passive aggressive nonsense for the whole weekend. And I, I have found that answers wonderfully. I think that's great advice. And do, and be honest about it. If your secret plan, as mine often is, is I would like to sit in the backyard for two hours in the sunshine and drink an entire six-pack on my own, just be upfront about it. You might not get to do it, but be at clear. Least, at, least, at least own it and then see what, what happens from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good advice, Ed. I, I appreciate that. Okay, great. Well, Morris, Kent, and Catherine, you've heard from me. Um, don't be afraid to go to sleep angry. Perhaps contra scripture, but listen, I think that the notion, I have known far too many young married couples trying to hash things out in the middle of the night, and then Kate and I end up talking with them, because we know a lot of young married couples, and they're like, this got worse, not better. In general, I think the kind of marriage advice I would give is like, go easy 
on yourself as you as you learn what it is to be married. I think people sometimes I'll be very honest. May I, may I speak in an adult manner if I do it in a in a um, in a, in a somewhat circumspect way? May I speak about adult subjects? You you gonna start cursing? No, I was going to say this. I know many young Catholic couples who, for example, have read uh, Love and Responsibility and read about like the sort of profound beauty and um, and spiritual meaning of uh, the conjugal act and place extraordinarily high expectations on themselves and their capacity to experience such things when indeed the conjugal act is like visceral and um, uh, takes some practice and yet people sort of think, oh, well, if we're a Catholic couple and we really love God, then we have to be, we have to like... Um, we have to check off all the boxes which are expressed in love and responsibility. And that I know can create a great deal of like um, difficulty for married couples. The notion that we have to know how to communicate right away can create a lot of difficulty. You're looking at me like I have three heads, but surely you talk to couples who have this experience. Yes. Why? Why what? Why would I talk about these things with other people? <laughs> because I just have known a lot of young married Catholic couples who place undue and unrealistic expectations on themselves. I, I, in I have all no areas doubt, of life, I have no difficulty in believing that many such people are out there. I'm, I'm horrified that they would want to discuss it with other people, though. <laughs> well, I think part of the notion of authentic Christian communion is sort of sharing one's life with others, don't you? Is that a, is that a swinging reference? Is that what you're talking? No, about? it's not a swinging reference. That's not even in the book. Whatever. I, I I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's fine. Was that too much? Should I cut it out of the show? No, 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 no. It's it's totally in brand for you. I just don't it's expect not... me to have any thoughts to share. <laughs> Look, I I got I got a, I got upset with you in the last episode for having opinions on mantillas, and now I'm having opinions on very personal things. I realize that I have just known many young. I don't couples have a problem with you having opinions. Just I who don't expect me to have them. Strong expectations on their marriage in all kinds of ways, and I think you have to give yourself a lot of grace and give your spouse a lot of grace to learn how to be married. What's wrong with a good firm handshake at the end of the day? That's all I'm saying. I don't know what that means. Okay. All right, Edward, we've got to stop talking about marriage because we've got to talk about consecrated life, do we not? Should we talk about what's going down in Texas? We're going to talk about Texas. It is time. If you readers of the pillar, if you are readers of the pillar, you uh, have been following a saga which is unfolding in the Diocese of Fort Worth, Texas, a dispute, a rather significant disagreement between the Bishop of Fort Worth, Bishop Michael Olson, and the uh, Carmelite Monastery of the Most Holy Trinity, the Arlington Carmelites, which are lo- who are located in Arlington, Texas. In as much as I recall, Arlington, Texas is where the Great American Ballpark is, as an aside. Is that not true? I believe that to be the case, okay. yes. So that's where the Texas Rangers play. Is that right, Ed? Uh, I believe so, yes. Okay. Um, okay, so the uh, a dispute has been unfolding between um, Bishop Michael Olson and the Arlington Carmelites. Oh, hold on one moment, please. Okay, the Great American Ballpark is actually in Cincinnati. Arlington <laughs> Stadium was in Arlington... Uh, Texas. It's where the Texas Rangers played uh, until 1993 when they moved into the ballpark in Arlington, which is now called Choctaw Stadium. So I was kind of right. But Arlington is where the Texas Rangers play. Yes. Okay. Uh, look, my, I'll be completely honest with you, J.D. My engagement with Major League Baseball is pretty minimal at this point. They have done virtually everything they possibly can to alienate me. And, um, you know, it's worked. They've succeeded. Okay. Well, so then we won't talk about baseball because we're trying to talk about the Carmelites. I don't know why you keep sort of distracting us from that. But the um, the uh, the Carmelites in Fort Worth uh, say that uh, they 
this is an extremely contentious and extremely complicated sort of dispute, and Ed and I are going to try to break it down. May because... I take a swing at the timeline, and then sure, you can, and and you can you can fill in if I get something wrong. Um, it is to the best of my understanding, this all began in April, uh, at which time, according to the the nuns of this Carmel, Bishop Olson arrived with some thirty five minutes notice and said that he was conducting an investigation into what he believed to be admitted sexual misconduct on the, on the part, part of, of the superior on the part of the superior um, with a priest not of the diocese and in the course of this i mean if it happened in a in a civil context you'd call it a raid i guess um but because anyway, it wasn't this... only bishop olson it was bishop olson the diocesan Chancellor, the Diocesan Safe Environment Coordinator, who's a layperson, and then a sort of forensic technician, also a layperson. And if you don't know very much about cloister Carmelite life, that's already kind of shocking because the cloister is a cloister to which the bishop has the right of entry, but to which other people don't. So the notion that the bishop would just sort of enter the cloister with other people without having made an arrangement and received permission is to the nuns an affront to their religious liberty, effectively, and their and their the, the dignity of their consecrated life. Yes. Um, and in the course of this visit, um, the bishop seized and took away, I believe, uh, a phone of some kind, uh, an iPad, a computer, sundry other communication technologies, and said that uh, all of this is being done as part of a, a canonically criminal investigation into the superior's alleged sexual misconduct, which he maintains she admitted to, to the diocesan vicar general in the presence of one of the nuns of the community in no, to December. The, to, to the vicar general and to one of the nuns, but not at the same time, just that she not at the same time. had apparently allegedly called the vicar general and confessed, having committed some sin against the sixth commandment, the details of which are very vague and very hazy, which may or may not have involved in some way a priest, but again, from all sides, the details are very, very hazy about what this alleged supposed admission actually was yes um since then the the nuns have vigorously opposed uh the bishop's canonical right to do all of the things he has done it has been pointed out that even if the sexual misconduct alleged by the bishop has occurred um, that's not a canonical delict it is not designated as a canonical crime in the code of canon law um, nor does the code give, or actually a wider canon law, give the bishop of the diocese the, the right or the authority to, as he has threatened to do, um, dismiss members of the community uh, for obstructing his investigation. Um, Pope Francis made some changes to canon law last year that actually removed further and circumscribed more the rights of diocesan bishop or the power of diocesan bishops to interfere with autonomous religious houses like this Carmel. And yet, um, Bishop Olson has has carried on regardless, or as you would say, JD, irregardless. I would and never say that. You're from New Jersey. I I I can't. This isn't even a kayfabe for the show right now. I have never been more offended by your characterization of me in my life. I would never say that. <laughs> I Proceed. beg your pardon. Your pardon. Um, so, uh, in addition to all this, Bishop Olson has uh, been on the receiving end of a lawsuit filed by the priory, monastery, convent, uh, seeking basically a restraining order, the restitution of the computer and phones and things that were taken. And also, I think at this point, a million dollars in damages is the nominal amount. The nominal amount requested, yeah. uh, Bishop Olson then retaliated and said that it is no longer convenient for daily mass and 
confessions to be provided to the sisters in the cloister and that they would not have access to such. They would have mass on Sunday because that was required by um, divine and universal law. But apart from that, they would not have access to the sacraments in their cloister until such time as they dropped the lawsuit. And there have been appeals, we understand, sent to Rome about all of this. On Wednesday of this week, the Holy See responded by issuing the Dickel cell, the dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Society of Apost- Societies of Apostolic Life, issued a decree signed by the secretary of the dicastery, constituting Bishop Olson as the pontifical commissary, which is not a title I've, I've heard much used, um, giving him and I'm quoting from the decree here, full governing power over the cloister and legally sanating all of his previous interventions, basically saying if he made an error in law or in process, we wave a magic wand and it is now legal retroactively, which is, again, a remarkable step to take. It was even more remarkable because the decree gave the name of a different Carmel, at least not the name of the Carmel that is involved in this dispute. I called it by the name of the Carmel of the Carmel of St. Joseph, right, right. The decree referenced the Carmel of St. Joseph. But the, the decree did say, and we're going to do the canonical analysis, analysis later, the decree did say it made him the pontifical commissary over um, the Carmelite monastery in Arlington, Texas, namely the Carmelite monastery of St. Joseph. So from my point of view, it's worth noting there is only one Carmelite monastery in Arlington, Texas. And so in a certain way, there's, there is a certain kind of clarity about what the Holy See was talking about. Uh, we'll book that, mark that for later analysis. Um, the decree also contained a protocol number that is three years old. Mm-hmm. So and what's a protocol it suggests number? a protocol number. Whenever a case is opened at a Vatican dicastery, a protocol number is assigned, and it's basically the case number in order in which they have arrived at the dicastery with the suffix year of its arrival. And so then the protocol number is affixed to all of the correspondence pertaining to that case, however long it goes on but dating back to that first filing. So it suggests that whatever is going on between Bishop Olson and this cloister of Carmelites, it has been going on for about three years now. And that is in itself surprising since from all of the public statements from the Diocese of Fort Worth and from um, the, the nuns, they all claim that this kicked off in December when Mother Superior supposedly uh, admitted to some sort of sexual misconduct, according to... Now, the nuns uh, say they the, have no the, idea what that protocol number actually is. You know, Yes, it, it they say they don't recognize it, they don't know. They've also argued that it's a canonically invalid decree constituting Bishop Olson um, as, as Pontifical Commissary because it doesn't actually list their convent. It right. lists a completely different thing that doesn't exist, and I have some sympathy with that. I, I don't hold much expectation that Rome will side with them on that argument, but anyway, there it is. Um, since then, it is it is to be noted that Bishop Olson has, uh, as of last night, I believe, uh, dismissed the former Mother Superior and the person at the center of at least his investigation, if not the, the wider whatever it is that's going on between Bishop Olson and this cloister, uh, dismissed her not just from her position as superior, but from the from the order, from the the discalced Carmelites. Um, which we should talk about in a moment. And uh, he has restored the the daily mass and confessions to the remaining sisters in the cloister. And um, I don't think we've heard the last of this story by any stretch of the imagination. J.D., your thoughts? 
Well, I think we should just say, we're going to have to go to commercial in just a minute, but I think we should just say this is far and away one of the most unusual canonical, uh, one of the most unusual kind of Catholic news stories that we have seen in a very long time. You know, um, we see things that are... Um, that are sometimes stories of great hope and sometimes stories of great atrocity and profundity. But I don't think that I can say that I have seen a story of greater strangeness with more things that you just sort of put your finger on your chin and say, huh, that's weird, uh, than this story. There are a number of anomalous elements of this story, which have, this story, by the way, which has captured a broad stretch of the public imagination because it's being covered, you know, there's a lawsuit between Carmel, a Carmel and a bishop, so it's being covered not only in Catholic media, but it's being covered in both national and local, the local press, and there's a very colorful, we didn't really get into him, but the, the nuns have a civil attorney who is a very colorful character, apparently a, an attorney I've asked sort of around in Texas, and apparently an attorney who has, um, by and large, a, a, a good reputation in the legal community, but who has, who has made very public um, and even and, and said some of them to the pillar, but very public accusations of um, of bad motives on the part of Bishop Olson, who has suggested that Bishop Olson has undertaken this entire thing to uh, acquire the list of the, the sister's database of donors so that he can use it for the, you know, for his own fundraising or that he might want to, as he, he told us, you know, see the monastery eventually close, see all of the nuns dismissed or depart so that in some way, the bishop could acquire the property of the monastery, the diocese could acquire the property of the monastery, which I thought there was absolutely no possibility of until such time as the bishop became the canonical superior of the monastery, which does suggest a pathway by which the diocese could acquire the property of the monastery, to be sure. Um, but Which the, is to be, to let it be understood, the property of the monastery is in, is surrounded by, I mean, this is acres and acres of land. This is not a building somewhere. This is a, right. this is yeah. um, a considerable plot of land, uh, which is as near as I can tell, surrounded by some of the plushest, most upmarket, yuppified. I'm not sure about the surroundings. I've heard, I, I haven't looked on Google Maps and I've heard different things from different people, but it I, is I've a heard lot there are some land. pretty plush zip codes around that place. I see. So, um, so, so the other kind of character in this is this attorney. Then there's this sort of strange side story to this, whereby the bishop um, refused to accept the canon lawyers nominated by the sisters to represent them. Not one, not two, but three canon lawyers nominated by the sisters to to represent them. And and a bishop has the right in a in a process to sort of accept or not accept the advocate of a party. And so he, he's sort of within his rights procedurally, perhaps not to accept uh, an advocate, but for cause. For there cause. Is that a, was my there, point. Is there is a broader presumption that you have the right, right to your own defense. Yeah, you have the right to choose your own advocate. There has to be a good reason. And there may be good reasons in some of those cases. Perhaps the bishop felt that some of the proposed advocates were not qualified. I could certainly um, you know, entertain that possibility. There are unscrupulous and unqualified canon lawyers out there. But the idea that all three of the canon lawyers presented by the nuns were, were not accepted um, is very unusual, and indeed what the bishop did was to appoint um, a sort of ad nudum episcopi, uh, according to his own mind, an advocate uh, to represent them, uh, a canon lawyer of his choosing rather than theirs, and they have objected to that so much so that they have reportedly um, declined to engage with this canon lawyer at all, that he has not really had the opportunity to talk with them, and therefore his ability to present a defense has 
been limited to kind of a defense related to the procedural elements of this case, whether the bishop had the right to do certain things and not a substantive defense at all. And the sisters are using, the nuns are using a different canon lawyer for the many appeals that they have filed in Rome, most of which at this point, I think, are rendered moot by the fact that the Holy See on Wednesday did a very unusual thing. Everything. Yeah, when they, uh, when they um, made him pontifical commissary, they also um, sanated all his previous administrative and... Um, uh, and legal acts. A sanation, Ed, it's a, it's a short term for sanatio in radici. It means we're going back um, to cleanse these acts at the root, um, to resolve them at the root. It is a sort of a legal fiction by which the, an, an, a legal authority, I suppose it doesn't have to be limited to the church, a legal authority says we're going to effectively, by decree, make right this thing which was in some way not correct or not legal uh, initially, a sort of retroactive approbatio of the thing. Um, the Holy See didn't say which acts they were sanating, so it's not like they said, hey, a lot of your acts were illegal here. Um, they just sanit gave him a blanket sanation such that everything he had done to that point they had judged to be legal, which would leave most of the nuns, um, most of the nuns' appeals um, resolved, except for uh, the appeals which they have now made against his decree of dismissal and things like that. So, um, Well, they of course, this act, this decree is an administrative act, is an act of executive authority on the part of the dicastery of Dickelsell. And that itself is subject to canonical appeal. Should the sisters choose to do so, you can take that to the apostolic signatura. Although at that point, you're facing off not against Bishop Olson of Fort Worth, you're facing off against the dicastery. Um, that, is, that is who your claim is against. And then the apostolic signature, which is the sort of church's supreme administrative court, uh, can can issue a ruling on on both the sort of procedural soundness by which this decree was issued, and again, there are lots of questions about the procedural soundness of this decree, as well as the substance of the decree, whether or not this represents um, something which is uh, canonically doable in the way that it was done. And again, I, I think there are a lot of questions about that. I mean, one of the things, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, that, that caught my eye, is this decree was published by the Diocese of Fort Worth, and I'd like to talk about the Diocese of Fort Worth's uh, sort of media engagement and lack thereof in a moment. Um, but this decree was made public by the Diocese of Fort Worth on, on May 31st. Uh, they said they had received the decree from Rome on May 31st, and the decree was signed in Rome on May 31st. Now, I have, uh, in, in my previous practice as a canonist, had, had occasion to do business with various dicasteries of the Roman Curia. Um, and and as a journalist, we, we have often um, tracked the, the legal acts of the Roman Curia. And when we often, when we report on such things, motus proprio, apostolic constitutions, decrees of various kinds coming out of various departments, response, responses from curial dicasteries, they will usually have the decree on which the the date on which the decree was signed, and that will be anywhere from six weeks to a month prior to its release is usually about the time it takes from when it's formally signed to when it actually makes its way out in the public domain. I have never in my life heard of a decree being signed in Rome, communicated to a bishop on the other side of the world, and then released by that bishop all in the same day. Have you? No, I have never seen that before. It was absolutely and totally... Uh... That is a Unusual, level of efficiency that shocking, simply does not exist yeah. in the Roman Curia. And there are many, many issues in the life of the church right now where things are taking 
months and months and months to address. So it was that is a very shocking thing. Ed, we have to go to commercial, and then we are going to um, be back to talk about our sort of assessment of all of this. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us and to you, dear friends, by Kara Petrovitz, who is a fiber artist. She is a Catholic and a mother, and she she does her art inspired by finding the beauty and inspiration in the chaos and joys of motherhood. Um, what she does is she really grounds herself and her work in the connection between art and Catholicism, which she believes to be utterly intrinsic, with art serving as a tool to express and reflect on the faith. Catholic artists were once abundant in the art world, but there's been a distinct lack of them in recent years. And, you know, one of the great things about uh, the period of time that we're living in is we have the opportunity for this kind of renewal. And so enter Kara whose faith, she says, inspires all of the work that she does and is you know, part of the pursuit of authentic beauty, which is very much a, a part of the Catholic aesthetic. Her unique talent is she's a fiber artist, which if you don't know what that is, means she sort of paints with wool, uh, using felting and weaving and embroidery to, to sort of bring her, her artistic expression to life. Her work has been exhibited in the United States, in Ireland, in Switzerland, and um, it, she she really has a sort of universal appeal with her message. I've looked at her website myself. It's some really interesting stuff there. Some of it's really quite catching. I like it. Um, her most recent work is featured in the Pentecost 2023 issue of Dappled Things, a Catholic journal of art and literature. And you can explore Kara's portfolio at her website, which is Kara Petrovitz, that's K-A-R-A-P-A-T-R-O-W-I-C-Z.com. You can follow her on Instagram at kara.petrovitz. And if you're interested in purchasing an original piece or commissioning a custom work of art, you can reach out to Kara directly. This is a great way to support a contemporary Catholic artist and, and to really get to know her and to show your encouragement and prayers. So that's karapetrovitz.com. Hey, everybody, we are back from our commercial. And Ed, that Kara Petrovich stuff, uh, I looked at her Instagram and her website. It is really cool. It is. It is a, it is a style of art I was not previously aware of. Um, you know, when, when Kara first contacted us and said she was a fiber artist, I, I didn't actually know what that meant. But I know now, and it's cool. Yeah, I feel badly because I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's so, it's so different from... Most painting with wool is the way. I painting mean, that is that wool is the way. Yes, yeah, yeah. But you can't. You really can't uh, understand it unless you see it. So go to careprovitz.com or follow her on Instagram, and you can find uh, a link to that in the show notes. But you really should do it because it's in, it is interesting as heck, as they say. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're back, and so Ed has. Uh, you've done a good job, Ed, of summarizing the situation here. The situation uh, is that this is a canonical. <laughs> The superior was accused of misconduct. The bishop um, took the phones of the sisters. He prohibited daily mass at the Carmel. The sisters made a recourse, and they also sued civilly. The bishop went to Rome, and he got himself appointed papal commissary for the monastery, after which he issued a decree of dismissal for the sisters. Along the way, there sister. have been sister, yeah, sister. Thank you. He he issued a decree of dismissal for the the sister, the nun who had been the superior, Mother Teresa Agnes of the Crucified Jesus. Um, along the way, he um, there are these irregularities. This irregularity of kind of uh, appointing ex officio an advocate and rejecting sort of number of advocates who were appointed attempted to be appointed by the sisters, some of whom are their advocates in Rome. There is this irregularity of the decree of appointment uh, to, of the bishop as papal commissary, misnaming the um, 
the monastery and using a protocol number that no one seems to have any idea of. And and we have talked with people close to the case on all sides. And uh, and then there's the irregularity of this civil civil attorney for the nuns who is kind of this big character who has made all these uh, rather uh, rather serious allegations against Bishop Olson uh, and his motivations here. We have talked to people close to the case on all sides, some of whom who can speak on the record, some of whom who can only speak on background to try and help us understand it. And many of them don't understand it as well. You know, there are people who say, look, there is so much going on here and it's hard to understand. And as you and I said, it's one of the more canonically unusual things that we have ever seen uh, in our careers, both as journalists and as canon lawyers. But it, I'll tell you, Ed, if I, for my money, I, I feel like this is like a sort of onion of surprise. Every time we peel back a new layer, I sort of don't know what to think anymore. You know, at one point I would have said this seems, and it still seems to me that one element of this is it seems to be a rather significant procedural overreach on the part of, um, on the part of Bishop Olson. But the protocol number and the other, you know, and the the the, the, the haste with which he has acted the ambiguity about the allegations all leads me to think that it is at least possible that there is much more going on here. And Bishop Olson has much more serious reasons to be acting than he has disclosed. Now, the problem with that is he has, he has put forth a narrative. It's not as if Bishop Olson has said nothing. He has published a series of decrees. and statements. This is the big problem. Right. Yeah. And, you know, again, we've tried to speak to Bishop Olson about this and we've been informed that it's not possible for him to speak to us at the moment because of the civil case. And, you know, there are good reasons for everything that's happening. Um, but they can't be discussed or disclosed. And I mean, okay, fine. But the the reverse of that coin is the Diocese of Fort Worth is putting out decrees and statements and stuff on an almost daily basis about this. Like they are driving the narrative. Mm-hmm. It's not that these cloistered nuns have got, you know, a, a bustling PR firm, you know, trying to, you know, whip the press up into a fury against them. Like the, the negative reaction and it has been overwhelmingly negative against bishop olson's involvement with the cloister is entirely a product of what the diocese of fort worth is putting out there and it's raising all of these canonical questions it is creating as i said you know not a great look for the bishop to you know appear to be depriving in a coercive manner uh a a cloister of religious nuns for from depriving them of the sacraments as a sort of means of coercing them uh threatening an entire carmel with dismissal if they you know obstruct his um canonically very irregular uh investigation issuing a writ of dismissal within 24 hours of being given uh, his position is i i don't see how it's possible that a credible canonical process could have taken place between Bishop Olson being so empowered and the decree of dismissal that, again, he publicized. None of this makes any sense. And frankly, none of it looks good for Bishop Olson. That having been said, it's clear from the weird protocol number, the indecent haste of the Holy See in intervening in this, um, that that something is going on that there there is much here we do not know yeah and it is entirely po- i mean i i am increasingly unpersuadable that there is some piece of information that will come to light that will make canonical sense of what bishop Olson has done but um, there might be something which would better explain a motivation the the lawyers are yes bishop Olson is doing all of this to get at the nuns donor list that to me would require an extraordinary it amount would of credulity require the donor list of the carmel to be incredibly, incredibly valuable. valuable right and and like this is some glenn gary glenn yeah, ross stuff valuable right? even if it was gotten by rather public ill-gotten gains like um you know the donor i would think that for most people on the donor list if they are big supporters of carmel 
Bishop Olson's name would be mud right now because we've heard from many of them who say Bishop Olson's name is mud. Many people are very publicly saying they think Bishop Olson has been very, very wrong on all of this. So after that, I mean, is the donor list worth anything? So that's not all that credible. We, again, think that it was very unlikely that the the motivation for this was to seize the sister's property. That's not how things happen in the church. I think that there – Well, it it used to be. I mean, one guy I talked to who – is quite high up in Rome uh, and and has a sort of tangential connection to the sorts of people who would look at these cases pointed out to me that this is how things used to be done in the Middle Ages. If if a monastery got too, too rich for the bishop's liking or he needed something of theirs, he would just kick in the doors and declare himself in charge, trump up some charges and get rid of the house and hope that he could get away with everything before, you know, the facts of the matter caught up with him. Now, I'm not saying that's what Bishop Olson has done, but I am saying that is the impression that his actions are giving in public. And again, yeah, it is right. the Diocese of Fort Worth that is creating that impression. That's right. This is a case where even if, again, it would be very, you'd be very hard-pressed to say that procedural justice has been done here because there are all these things which seem to evidence procedural— Well, there's no crime. Procedural, that's the, right. that, that is the, the, the er problem with all there of this There are all case. these things which seem to evidence procedural injustice, including the fact that no crime has been identified, including the fact that the sister was apparently interrogated immediately after having had surgery and being on um, fentanyl and other very serious opioid pain medication, including the fact that— her, you know, she did not apparently have a vigorous right of defense, and that they have again not been notified of what the alleged delict is, even at the point of her dismissal. The the notion of thirteen ninety five two, you know, um, some sort of public or coercive sexual act, thirteen ninety five two pertains to whom, Ed? Clerics. Clerics. Is a sister a cleric? No, no. I mean, so, allegedly she did this with a cleric, but again, we ha- we don't know his name. No one's issuing decrees against this guy. He's right. just kind of in the wind. Right. Exactly. So all of these things together. Yeah, just create. Uh, it's a terrible look. A terrible, terrible and, and again, look. it's and, at the and, moment it's no more than a terrible look because I we can't say for sure what we don't know, and it's entirely possible. From you know, every time I read a new decree that's come out about this, and I have a whole host of new questions, I would probably now put it at about thirty percent and falling the chances of this, but it's still a sizable chance that there is unknown information that will at some future point come to light. Uh, that will, if not explain the canonical mess that appears to be going on here, at least explain the tearing urgency that Bishop Olson seems to be acting with. Right. That, that you know, if the if it turns out that I would not be surprised, I would not be surprised if it turned out that there were much more serious problems at the monastery in one way or another than have been manifested. But the problem is, um, the reason why this is so, why so many people are paying attention to this, is because. You know, for justice to be done, you know, for justice to be done, justice needs to seem to be done, to have been seen to have been done. You know, one needs to, we've talked about this many, many times, that if you don't have the impression that justice has been done, it's very hard for a process to achieve its actual ends, one of which is the repair of scandal. And in this case, we seem to have surreption, right? If the bishop is acting for some other reason, um, if the bishop is acting for some other reason, it would seem to me he should manifest that reason um, because without it, um, people have the scandal of the appearance of profound procedural irregularity over a substantive issue of non-import or, or limited importance. And that, you know, the, the issue, as you say, of profound procedural irregularity isn't going away. But I do think if there's a profoundly more important substantive issue, given the diocesan propensity to address all this in the public, they ought to have addressed that in the public. Yeah. And in the interim, I would, if people working in the Chancery of the Diocese of Fort Worth are listening, I, I would ask you, please, 
either say everything or say nothing. But in you know the interim of this sort of the daily drip of, of statements and decrees that make no sense and just raise a whole bunch of questions that people aren't prepared to answer, I mean, this is not helping you. It's not helping the situation. And more importantly, it's ruining the fun for us. We would much rather get your documents and decrees out the back door and, you know, have them all have them all to ourselves. You know, don't just put it up on the website like that. You're, you're, you're ruining the fun. <laughs> well, yeah, that may be true. But, you know, the truth is, I mean, some, what's funny for us is, of course, sometimes these things happen in a place where we have a ton of sources. And sometimes these things happen in a place where we have no sources. And uh, we have been to Dallas. And we have the right clothing for Fort Worth, but we have not we, actually. We were all told when we were in we Dallas, were you seem to be lost. You Fort really Worth is that way. in Fort Worth because we were wearing our cowboy shirts and we were all told that's Fort Worth. That's Fort Worth style there, boys. But we didn't, uh, we didn't make it to Fort Worth and we, we don't really have contacts or relationships there. So we are, like everybody else, just trying to catch up on the fly on this. Now, we've built some contacts, I think, who are helpful and all that. But we're trying to catch up on the fly. But boy, Ed, this case, I think part of the reason why people are having such a such an interest in this case why Catholics are having such a visceral response to this case is because they're juxtaposing it with the church's plotting pace on Rupnik, Zanketa, Sticka, take your pick. Yes, absolutely. And it, uh, but again, to to what we said earlier, the indecent haste, the it, well, I I I would indecent's the wrong word. The unbelievable, and I mean that literally. I do not believe the pace with which Rome appears to have acted in this case. I, again, I've never seen a dicaster of the Roman Curia sign a decree, get it to the bishop it concerns on the other side of the world, and have that bishop put it out in the public domain on the same day. That I've never seen it happen. I'm astounded. If that is if that is literally the speed with which Dickelcell is currently operating, if that's the level of efficiency they are currently at, it's news to me. Um, it's news to other canonists I know who have cases of their own outstanding there. And if that is reflective of their new level of efficiency, then whoever is responsible for that, they should make him sustituto and get the whole curia operating at this speed. But I find it very hard to believe. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We have definitely not seen the last of this. Where things stand right now is that the superior remains in her monastery. We're recording this on Friday afternoon. The superior remains in her monastery. When you make a recourse uh, in canon law at an appeal, um, the recourse against a decree has what's called suspensive effect, which means that effectively the thing is not the, – the recourse pauses the execution of the decree. And so the superior, Sister Ter Mother Teresa Agnes of the Crucified Jesus, has made a recourse to the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life against the decree of dismissal. And I believe they've made a recourse against the apostolic to the apostolic signatura against the decree of appointment of pontifical commissary. And Mother Teresa Agnes has not moved out of the monastery as of yet because of this notion of suspensive effect. She's waiting to see what will happen. And it would not be, I think any canon lawyer worth the salt would say, it would not be in her interest to uh, move out. You know, you um, much like a civil eviction proceeding, the very last thing you want to do is pack your bag because you will have surrendered. Once you're out, it's a lot easier for anyone to argue that you have surrendered your rights to be out. But again, yes. th there could be some very serious issues in this monastery of which we're not aware. Um, and, and that could even perhaps justify the bishop's zeal to dismiss the nun. But I, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that it would justify, unless there's something profound that we don't know about, that it would justify his uh, tactics for the dismissal of the nun. Well, and what fascinates me about all of this and is another huge unanswered question is where are the Carmelites in all of this? Like, I know this is an autonomous religious house, fine, but 
thanks to Cororans, which, you know, was shoved through by the good folks at Dickelcell not long ago, um, all of these houses, all of these autonomous houses have to be part of a federation now. There is a, fed, a local federation that this Carmel is presumably a member of. There is a, an international, a global sort of secretariat and chancery for the Order of Discalced Carmelites. And they're nowhere in all of this. Like, I would have thought they would be screaming blue murder about the procedural problems with this, if not the substance. And if there is, you know, a, a real problem in this house, why aren't they involved in cleaning it up? Why is it being left to the local bishop? It doesn't, none of it adds up. Yeah. Often when we talk about these kinds of things, we talk about what happens next. But in this case. I don't know. I, I got nothing. Yeah. I have no, I have, I could not have predicted any of the last four things that have happened in this. Yeah, no, that's case. absolutely right. I mean, it's just, it goes from, it goes from crazy to crazy or shocking to shocking yeah. as, as the world turns in a certain way. Um, one interesting point in with regard to the decree appointing Bishop Olson commissary, you know, many people have made a great deal of hay out of the fact that the protocol number is apparently, you know, wrong or twenty twenty protocol number, which could signify again that Bishop Olson has had a long history of dealing with the nuns in one way or another, or that they're that's the sort of when the Holy See for some reason opened an initial file on the nuns. I know there have been other you know, the, the, there could be other reasons why the protocol number kind of doesn't doesn't match up there. So people have made sort of hay about that, and people have questioned the validity of the of the decree by virtue of the fact that it got the name of the monastery wrong. I don't think that's going to go very far in Rome. But one other, I, there there is, I think, a case for cumulative issues with the decree. The decree has to be comprehensible, JD, as a as a matter of law. A decree as an act as an administrative act has to have certain characteristics that make it coherent. Um, incorrectly naming the people to whom the decree applies is a strike. Incorrectly assigning a protocol number, if indeed it is an incorrect protocol number, is another strike. If there is a problem with the date on this thing, and again, I suspect there might be, um, that is another problem. It seems to me most likely with regard to the date that the decree was done several days beforehand, but for whatever reason, and this is strange, they sort of forward dated it so that the date on it would be the date of publication. But you can't do that. You can't do that, right? I agree that's that you can't forgery. do all of that those is, things. That is a canonical crime. I, I agree that you cannot do all of those things. I do not think... So at a certain point, the decree does become invalid. It does. And what will happen after the decree becomes invalid? Well, they'll reissue they'll another, another one correctly. One. And they'll yeah, they'll sonate the, yeah, the old yeah, one. They'll but... the old one and they'll sonate whatever actions he's done in the meantime... It doesn't oh, matter. The biggest fight I've ever had in my entire canonical career was at the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith um, in front of a turna of judges at the level of an apostolic tribunal where I actually had a rather undignified outburst as defense counsel. And I said, your eminence, there is no such thing as merely procedural law. There is only procedural law or there is anarchy. And this was not taken kindly. And I was told to sit down and shut up when they were senating the procedural errors anyway. <laughs> they're going to senate the procedural errors of the decree. They're going to, you know, even if we say it's for validity, they're going to senate that. That's not, so, because this is effectively in Rome, I've talked with many, many canon lawyers who say there's a legal path forward here. But the fact of the matter is the situation of this case, it seems to me, points to the fact that there is no separation in disputes at the level of the Holy See between disputes of a legal nature and disputes of a political nature, which is to say the rule of law at the Holy See at the moment, in my observation, 
is tinged with politics. And we saw this with the um, <laughs> we saw this with the efforts to address the Vadi Mekum, the infamous Vadi Mekum of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of Sacraments, where the, the instruction clearly exceeded the man, its mandate because the instruction can't legislate. But the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments implemented not even exactly an instruction, more like a Vadi Mekum, right? A, a sort of guidebook, a guidebook for how to implement. It was um, just a Q&A. Yeah, a Q&A kind of body making for how to implement traditionaris custodes and it cre- effectively created lots of new law. And um, when that was pointed out, the holy the answer of the Holy See was to say, well, okay, but it's a law. You know, it's a law now. Um, and no, so, no, the answer of the Holy See was, it has always been law. You just don't know how to read the original text and then issue a rescript Changing the original text. But changing the original, the rescript is the important part because the rescript is the thing which is, is the law now. I refuse to accept it's always been the law. It can't have always been the law because if it had always been the law, then you wouldn't have needed a rescript. Right. That's exactly. That's my point. Is I refuse to accept that it's always been the law because then you wouldn't have needed a rescript. The fact that you had a rescript means it hadn't been the law and Romans can get to concede that, but they were going to fix it. And what you had was effectively the politicization of a legal process. And that happens, I suppose, in any society. Um, but it certainly is the case yeah, that we're failing societies, J.D., I think the question that I want to drive to, or the point that I want to drive to, is what we're seeing is um, at the level of the Holy See on these kinds of issues. First, at sickle cell, you know, first at divine worship, now at sickle cell. We can think of other examples as well. Uh, a sort of consuming the ordinary principles of the rule of law into something which is far more political, so that legal arguments you can make your legal arguments but the solution will be political rather than legal. And I, I don't know how novel that is. It's not my experience of, it's not, it's not always been my experience of the Holy See. I mean, I don't just want to say this is the, this is the nature of the, of the Roman Curia and the Francis papacy. I did not experience this in dealings as a canon lawyer with the, with the, um, with the Holy See, with the Dicastries of the Holy See previously to the same extent or observe them with the same frequency. But you do see a kind of assumption of, legal principles into political decision-making and then sort of legal wrapping around them. Yeah. I refuse to say, though, of course, that that means a failing society of the church because the society of the church can't fail. It can only I didn't be- say the society of the church is going to fail. <laughs> okay. I merely made the observation that this is the sort of thing you see in failing societies. You do. And so... It is you know, not the sign of a healthy or thriving society, J.D., that the rule of law is completely disregarded and subverted by political interest. That is not a sign of a healthy or thriving society. And in our society, in the society of the church, the observe, the observance of the rule of law is volitional. The Pope and those who are empowered by the Pope decide the degree to which they'll hold themselves accountable to the rule of law. And although we have seen the Pope as a prolific legislator, and although we have seen the Pope as a person who urges um, adherence to the law in his statements, it is certainly true that right now in the Curia, we're seeing sort of a repeated pattern of uh, law as a subset of politics. Yeah. I hate to end there, Ed. That's not a happy note. Well, you don't always get what you want. Ed, what are your secret desires for the weekend? Uh, let's, secret plans. Secret plans, the, sorry. What are you secret thinking? desires is very... Uh, you're, you're back to your weird bedroom talk. And I'm I'm not, I was not talking about a bedroom. I was just saying... That- my, my secret plans for this weekend, I mean, it is quite nice. I... I have an insane email inbox that I have to clean up. I don't know. I'm trying to decide whether or not I will be able to write the thing that I've wanted to write today, which is um, this morning Pope Francis reconstituted the Court of Appeal for Vatican City State and made what I 
Uh, Cardinal my, Farrell is the new uh, Cardinal Farrell is empowered over. Yeah, there. it is. This is. I mean, I have no one has been more. Um, I think fair-minded and open-minded and even broadly supportive of Pope Francis's legal reforms in the Vatican City State than me. Uh, this, though, this is not good. I do not like what I have seen. This is this is a clericalization of the appeals court, and at the same time, it is. That's so funny. There are no we lawyers. Just saw a laicization of the of the of the governance structure. Yeah, we just saw legislation, but he's just completely clarified. He's reconstituted put all these cardinals on the Court of Appeal. He's removed Cardinal Mamberti. And the, the way that the Court of Appeal for Vatican City State has always worked is it has been basically a subcamera of the Apostolic Signature, which is the Holy See's supreme um, judicial organ. And so it's not a question of it being particularly clerical, but it's that the Pope has reconstituted who's on it. And he's moved Mamberti, who is the the head of the signatura. He's no longer head of the tribunal, the Court of Appeals for the Vatican City State. He's just a uh, an ordinary judge. He's put Cardinal Kevin Farrell in the hot seat. Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who, and I'm subject to correction here, has absolutely no legal training or experience no, whatsoever. Ditto Cardinal Mario Zuppi, who's been put on there, and is, is only qualifying criteria that I can discover as he's president of the Italian Bishops' Conference. I, and a couple of, like, it... it baffles me why and you know there's an important appeal coming to this court because about this time next year the lower court in vatican city is going to deliver the verdict uh, in the financial trial and somebody's going to appeal it doesn't matter what they find who they find for it's going to appeal and it's going to go to a political court now with no judges on it that have any legal training i like what what is going on i don't understand so i'm trying to decide if i can turn my reaction um to that into something productive in the time frame that I have remaining this afternoon. I don't know if I will. It may have to wait till Monday morning. We'll see. Um, for other secret events this weekend, I need to. I do need to water the lawn. Um, it has gotten very dry, so I'll probably water and mow the lawn at some point. I think it's probably. I, I'm a man of modest ambitions this weekend, JD. Well, that's great. Good. I just great. want to make it till Monday. Good. There you go. I hope that you will. Um, but Ed. I would suggest to you, I can hear that you are vexed by these things and possibly even a little bit more than vexed. And I have a suggestion for you that might be helpful. Do you know what it is? Uh, is it is it to go to bed angry? Is that what you want me to do? <laughs> That's good advice, man. It's good advice. It's good advice. Uh, no, I would suggest Ed, that if you're really fi- feeling frustrated about these things, then one thing that you might find to be useful and um, of spiritual benefit and maybe even of a sort of personal benefit is... Um, to spend some time, Ed, with the art of Kara Petrovich. Uh, Kara Petrovich, who has sponsored this episode of the Pillar Podcast, a Catholic artist who does extraordinary things by painting with wool, which, Ed, you can look at at Kara Petrovich's Instagram, Petrovich, P-A-T-R-O-W-I-C-Z, or which you can check out at karapetrovich.com. Her work has been featured in Dappled Things. She's displayed it in many places around the world, and honestly, it is just very, very cool. You should consider purchasing an original piece or commissioning a piece of work from Kara, uh, and you should consider supporting a contemporary Catholic artist by getting to know her work, um, by praying for her, by encouraging her, and really by checking out this really cool stuff that she does. At karapetrovich.com, the sponsor of this week's episode. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed of the Secret Desires, Connie. That's so weird. Ha, <laughs> ha,